Welcome to the Open Deeply podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Kate Lurie. I'm a sex-positive psychotherapist with a specialty in trauma. My co-host is Sunny Megatron, who is an award-winning sex educator. Our guest today is Lenora Clare. Here's a little bit about Lenora. Lenora Clare is a survivor of multiple violent crimes, a member of the Los Angeles District Attorney Crime Victims Advisory Board, the CEO of Lenora Clara Consulting LLC, as well as an entertainment industry professional. After becoming the fixation of a dangerous stalker, Lenora began to speak out, not only for herself, but for the other 7.5 million Americans currently being stalked who find themselves without resources and living in fear. Lenora's case has been featured on 48 Hours, Dr. Oz, Crime Watch Daily, CBS News, and other media outlets. Named the Aaron Brockovich of Stalking by Vice, Lenora has helped countless people obtain restraining orders. She has served as a human shield in court and lectured on the subject of risk minimization at schools, on television, and on podcasts. With fellow advocate Jess Gilbert, they formed the Innovative Justice Alliance to propose legislation and develop methods of prevention in the technology space. Lenora has also worked as a consultant for television and film, advocating for victims and their families to ensure respectful depictions of their most traumatic and vulnerable moments of their lives. Before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy, nor is it a replacement for therapy. Please know that this episode has themes of sexual and emotional abuse. So if you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call a friend, a therapist, or an emotional support hotline, such as 800-723-TALK, which is 8255. Okay, For a moment, I'd like to talk about the purpose of Open Deeply, specifically related to sexual abuse and stalking. As a psychotherapist who has worked with sexual abuse for 18 years, I've thought a million times, I wish I could do a Vulcan mind meld with all of humanity so this world would understand the global pandemic that is sexual abuse, along with related trauma, such as being stalked. And the sexual abuse or stalking is only one part of the trauma. Survivor's community commonly turns a blind eye or worse, attacks the survivor. Meanwhile, the justice system so often completely fails them. As a result, survivors are often left feeling alone, riddled with PTSD symptoms, with no one truly hearing their voice. And so our podcast is here to amplify the voices of survivors via the telling of vulnerable life stories. That brings us to Lenora. Lenora, you are a lighthouse for so many survivors and a bellwether for social change within so many systems, legal and governmental to name two. I feel blessed to call you a dear friend, and I can't wait to watch your story continue to unfold. And likewise. So, Lenora, before you tell us your story, is there anything you'd like us to know first? 
Oh my God. I mean, no, I'm, I'm just happy to be here. I, I got, there's no like disclaimer or, or anything that I, I guess actually, sure. Actually, no, that's not true. <laughs> I, right as I say that, I'm like, no, I'm wrong. My only disclaimer that I want to make before, you know, I talk about my stalker is I want to press upon everyone that my dad was a psychiatrist, right? So I have deep empathy and understanding for anybody who's struggling with their mental health. And even if I talk about my stalker who happens to be schizoaffective as well as have erotomania, I just want to be very clear that I don't believe that all people who are schizophrenic or schizoaffective are dangerous. Like I just have to say that. It's my, my stalker is, but it, it, you're, that is the disclaimer I want to make is that I'm very well aware that not everyone who, who's struggling with that, you know, is a danger. Yeah, that's such a good point. And, you know, you and I have talked about that when I worked at Sherman Oaks Hospital for about 10 years, I used to do art therapy groups with schizoaffective and schizophrenic people that were stabilized. And they were such out of the box creatives and so wonderful. And I always loved working with them. You know, a stabilized schizoaffective person, or just in general, they're not usually dangerous. In fact, they usually have more trauma that happens to them versus them causing trauma. Yeah. yeah. When my stalking experience started in 2011, which we'll get into, we didn't have the language yet, but I also have to note my stalker is an incel. And so actually that's that's where the danger comes from. It's the incel behavior, not necessarily the, the schizoaffective stuff. So now we have language for it. Now we have a way to describe that part of this personality. Yeah. Thank you definitely for making that point. And with that said, please tell us your story. As you spoke earlier, I think maybe it makes the most sense when telling my story, because I always tell people like, look, when you Google me now, regardless of all the accomplishments and all the interesting things I had done in my life prior to this happening to me, because it's been in the headlines and because of the sort of ancillary characters being who they are, that's what comes up first, right? So everybody knows, like, imagine like, I want the listeners to sit at home and just think to themselves what their worst trauma is. And imagine if that's like when every door opened, every job interview, every first date, that's like the first thing people know. So while that is a lot of people's introduction to me, that is not who I am. I'm a fully fledged person who's done a lot of stuff in my lifetime. So I guess I'd, you know, really like to take it to the beginning, if that makes the most sense to sort of explain who I am. Because also that that's really story-wise, a lot of what I've then pivoted to, it'll make sense why, like with my journey. So to understand me, you really have to understand who my father was. My dad was this amazing person. He was a urologist psychiatrist, which is like a dual specialty you'll never see, who specialized in sex therapy, as you can imagine, you know, the, the two go very well together, the urology with psychiatry. <laughs> and he, one of his things he was very proud of, and I have to sort of tell this in explaining my story, was that my dad helped pioneer a lot of the early gender affirmation procedures in the 70s in New York because he was doing urology. And so it's like, that's how progressive and forward thinking and loving he was, and he was like working on that stuff in the 70s when that was not a common thing for surgeons to be, you know, working on and exploring. And my father just really believed that everybody deserved to be honored and live their best life. So I grew up in the 80s in the Valley, which was like a really, you know, everyone has seen all the, the great movies that came out of that time. Like the Fast Times at Ridgemont Hall Mall was like where I got my Girl Scout uniform. So like very, very much like, I just remember thinking like, you know, all, all the Valley Girl stuff like that was the whole world. And I had like a really, really different upbringing. Like there was, especially when your father then pivots to like sex therapy. So we had a really sex positive household. 
and just, just really awesome. And I was in like a highly gifted magnet that really shielded me from a lot of like the stuff that my peers talk about, especially if you're kind of alternative or you were the weird kid. Like I was in this program for kids with 150 and above IQs. So everybody was the weird kid. Right. And so like, I remember being in like kindergarten and bringing, we, I still have it since my dad passed. He had an anatomical teaching model of a penis named Oscar after Oscar Meyer Wiener. <laughs> and then like, I remember bringing it to kindergarten and being like, ureter, bladder, prostate, urethra, this is the vas deferens. Like I was six because that's the kind of shit, like whatever your parent did, you know, they brought their work home with them. So like the first thing, like actually this really funny video of my dad, I was an early reader too. I was like four and the first time that I like read on my own without assistance, I picked up a cartoon pamphlet in his office. It was called Herpes the Love Bug. And that was like the first thing I read. And my dad's like, cool, you can read on your own. That's great. So I had this like really unusual childhood, but in the best way. And I was a little fucking Wednesday Adams weirdo. You know, my dad also had like he collected medical oddities. So he would have like the kidney stone museum in the garage or like he had a collection of x-rays of, you know, people who, who were experimenting and, you know, they put Barbies up their rectum and whatnot. So he had like a fun, like x-ray collection. You know, th- these are things that like most kids don't have in the home. So I kind of like, that was my baseline. <laughs> my baseline was like very eccentric, but loving. So I'm the product of that kind of a home. So I just have to like explain that. Like that's like kind of my origin story. And I graduated high school really early. I was 15 years old. High school socially was like not fun for me. I'd already skipped a grade, like just whatever. I got out at 15, which if you're living in LA as I was and you have a diploma, you're kind of this golden child in Hollywood because you can work on the TV shows and they don't have to have a tutor. So I was able to move out at 16 fully supporting myself because I was like, you know, making money, working believe me, I was never a good actress, but like, you know, just like little tiny bit parts or extra work or whatever. So I kind of got a jump start on adulthood there by 16, like living on my own and doing all that. And then it's a long story, but I was one of the first hot topic models, which is like kind of funny too. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. So like this was, uh, I was like 17 years old and, you know, it was like free lip service clothing. So being one of the first hot topic models, like I had stores and malls across America and whatnot. And then I was an early adopter to, I was one of like the first people that had their own personal website, like probably 1997, 1998, when I was like 17, 18 years old. And so through all of that, I grew up, one of my favorite bands in high school was Susie and the Banshees. And I like, yeah, I used to have like the Trapper Keeper with like the stickers, you know, on it. And so that's how Steven Severin, he was 25 years older than me. I guess he was like up at night just Googling goth girls or something. I don't know. Like, I guess Google wasn't even around. Who knows? But however, he found me. I was like 19 years old and then we started this correspondence and long story short, I ended up dating him and living in London with him for a while. And so that, that was a whole other adventure. And then I came back to Los Angeles and I was really like a creative person, but I hadn't quite found my voice and what I wanted to do yet. And so an opportunity presented itself and I actually got a job when I was 21 as an entertainment writer for, it's now defunct magazine, but it was called Frontiers and it was LA's oldest queer publication because I've always been way more comfortable in queer spaces. And so it was such a great place for a 21 year old to be interviewing my heroes like Elvira and Julie Newmar and, you know, people like that. It was just a, a really wonderful creative time in my life. Yeah. So I had years where I was, was a writer and I think that's where like the storytelling, you know, which later kind of came into the other stuff that I would do. And then I started 
figuring that I wanted to do something in art, but I was unsure what I wanted to do with that. And then as luck would have it, I was looking for Golden Girls DVDs on eBay. This is for timeline wise, I would be like 26 or 27 at this point. I was like looking for the DVDs and I found this like unbelievable nude oil portrait of B. Arthur. And I was like, (laughs) I have to fucking buy this thing. So I bought it, which like I hung it over my bed. And I remember the guy I was dating at the time was like, I can't like do this with you here with her. And I remember <laughs> saying to him, I'm like, if you can't get down with B, you can't get down with me, get the fuck out. And that's when I really realized that like there was something, not just to that painting, which was amazing. It's by an artist named Chris Zimmerman. But I was like, what is it about senior sexuality that like freaks people out so much? You know, because remember, I grew up in this really like sex positive household. So I, it's weird. Like I was kind of put into this world where I thought everybody was going to be awesome and then I had to like learn as I like was released out into the wild. Like, no, not everybody's awesome. And not everybody like grew up with this level of love and acceptance. So to see everybody kind of like reacting to this painting, like it was something gnarly. Whereas I was just like, oh my God, I love B. Arthur so much. Like B. Arthur and boobs. This is awesome. And to see everybody like really just repulsed was, was really shocking to me, especially because I had just interviewed Julie Newmar for the magazine, who at that point, let's see, I had attended her 75th birthday party and she was still like so vibrant and beautiful. And like, I was so moved by that. And then to see people's reactions. So I was like, oh my God, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to curate a huge art show called Golden Girls Gone Wild. And it's going to all be erotic depictions of the Golden Girls. Like this is amazing. And as luck would have it, I was friends with World of Wonder, the company that does drag race and a bunch of shows people know. And they own this beautiful building on Hollywood Boulevard. And the lower level of the building, it was used to be a retail space, but it had vacated and they weren't sure what they're going to do with it. So I asked them, I was like, can I just do my art show here and like give you some of the money? They're like, yeah, sure. So I started working on the show. I got like 40 artists to make unbelievable pieces, you know, ranging from beautiful to like really distasteful, but in the best way. Like it was like, it was like, there was some raunchy stuff. There was a little bit of everything represented, but all the art was like really fantastic. And it blew up. It was one of the first stories on TMZ when TMZ launched. And it was like, it went viral before we had a word for it because this would be like 2007. And so there was like 2,000 people lined up around the block to get into my art show. And it became like this huge happening. And like, like I had like nude go-go dancers with giant puppet heads, the Golden Girls. Because it wasn't, for me to say it was an art show, that's like a real understatement. Like it was like a Fellinia spectacle. <laughs> it was a lot happening too many things, but in in the best way. And that really kind of like cemented this reputation for me for doing like fun, weird art stuff in LA. And people probably don't realize it, but like, you know, there's this trend of like a lot of galleries doing pop culture themed art shows. Like I really was the first person to do that, but like nobody really credits me for that, even though I, I to my knowledge, I, I am. And then shortly after that, cause like all those galleries that came, they came after so then I did another big show. I'm, I'm friends with Olivia, you know, the unbelievable artist who was in Playboy for like 30 years. And she's painted me. I love her so much. And she had painted a lot of iconic Betty Page images. So when Betty Page passed, we decided to do a show together called Betty Page Heaven Bound. And it was in part like a lot of Olivia's beautiful Betty artwork, but also like Betty's high heels. And we worked with Betty's estate. So it was this other like unbelievable show that we did in that space. I, I can show you videos sometime. It was just like so wonderful. And then what ended up happening, you know, because life is just kind of weird like that. What ended up happening was I had a clothing store called Betty Page Clothing sponsor the show. And they loved the space and what we did with it so much that they like went to World of Wonder and they're like, we want to turn it into our clothing store. So I had done such a good thing that I like lost the gallery space and they turned it into whatever. It's totally fine. And so 
then this drag queen I didn't even know very well was like, I, you know, I loved your shows, whatever. And I'm so sorry, the gallery space that you were using, it's not a thing anymore. But my parents owned a video store and we could turn it into a gallery. And I was like, what? So we did. We like, just, it was like, it literally fell into my lap. And I was like, wait, I get to open a business and I don't have to pay any money. I get to just <laughs> show up and do what I want to do, really. So that's what I did. And we opened up a gallery called Pop-Tart. And one of our first shows was called Your Face Here with my best friend, Austin Young, who's unbelievable. He's so wonderful. And the concept behind the show was Austin's idea. was so clever because he, he shoots a lot of celebrities, but he's an artist, right? He's not like somebody who's out to be a commercial person. He's fine art. Like he has Project Fallen Fruit, like it shows at Victoria and Albert and like museums. So he's coming from an artist place, not necessarily the, the commercial, like I'm so eager to shoot celebrities. It just so happens he's so talented that he shoots a lot of celebrities. So what he wanted to do was kind of give back and make everybody feel special. So with your face here, the opening night was actually blank walls. And if you attended, you were able to buy, because usually he's like very, very expensive. He's many thousands of dollars if you're going to commission him to do a shoot. And so he made the rates super affordable. I think the lowest rate was like $200. And he would do a full shoot with you. And then one of the prints would then go on the wall. And the people who attended, they themselves became the art, right? So that was the concept. So it was really, really cool. So when we did that, we also got a lot of press because it was just like this really innovative idea with an amazing artist. And it was my new gallery space. And so... I was made one of the LA Weekly People of the Year, which, you know, growing up in LA, like that was like a really cool thing. Yeah, yeah I'm not saying that to like wrestle my laurels. It's relevant to the story we're going to go into. So they called me P.T. Barnum with boobs, which I still think is funny. <laughs> like my identity now is so far removed from that. But at the time, that was like a really appropriate, like that made a lot of sense and very accurate. I'd also had like I had a birthday party before I get into where I'm going with Pep Stalker and all that. But I had done a birthday party because I was getting so much press at that time. I was like, it's kind of, I was also doing a club called Mr. Black, which was like the hottest like LGBT night as well. So like that was happening and it was like brought out from New York. So that's sort of like, you know, Amanda Lepore type nightlife thing. We didn't really have that in LA and that's who, the kind of energy we were bringing with this party. So it was like really special. So it's like embarrassing to say, but like if enough newspapers say it, it's okay. Like, like they're calling me like the it girl of LA, like during those years. Right. So I was approached by Canal Plus, which is like the HBO of France. And they're like, we want to, you know, make you like the guide to Los Angeles on a TV show. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. And that was the year that the Houdini Mansion, which I'd like grown up being obsessed with living in LA because it was always like really shrouded in mystery. And everyone's like, what the hell's back there? You're like, you know, you, you knew it existed, but you couldn't see it. And so that was the year that they finally, for a lot of money, like opened it up to the public and you could rent it. So like I was dying to get in there, but I didn't have in my mid-20s, like an extra 10 grand to like rent a party out for a night. So I was able to convince this production. I was like, look, you want to see all the clowns and the drag queens and this is many days of production. Why don't you just rent me this space and I'll throw a party and they'll all come to you. And like, that's how we did it. So I had like a pretty LA Weekly called the party of the year. So like, anyway, all, all this stuff was happening. And I bring this up so you could understand like just how fun my life was. Like I would, you know, interview my favorite celebrity at my day job. And then I would go to the party that I was hosting at night. And then Chara would be there, you know, like it was like a really fun time. Like all this stuff was just kind of happening. So the LA Weekly article comes out and it got a lot of attention because I was like on the front page, like right when you opened the first thing, because I I've had a monkey friend, a capuchin monkey that I've been friends with, who's actually later on the bridesmaid at my wedding. Her name is Zuni. But so the picture was of me holding Zuni the monkey, right? So it's kind of striking, like this like redheaded woman holding a monkey. So it like got a lot of attention. Anyway, so 
what happened was my stalker, whose birth name is Justin Masler, legally changed to Cloud Star Chaser. He was out in New York already stalking Ivanka Trump. He tried to kill himself in one of her stores, like long, violent history. But I, you know, I don't know any of this. This is also 2011 Ivanka Trump. It's a very different Ivanka Trump. You know, I'm living my life out here. Like I'm having the it girl fun time at the gay parties. Like that's that's my existence. And he was arrested for stalking Ivanka and he skipped bail and he came to LA. He opens up to LA Weekly, sees this picture of me, which is very striking, and he becomes fixated on me. And so mm-hmm. that's what brought him into my gallery. And he was dressed up like Spaceman, which when I tell this in court, as I've had to many times, you know, first they're like Claire versus Star Chaser. And like everyone looks at me and then they're like, he was a Spaceman. But when you're growing up sort of in these spaces and working in these spaces, you know, I'm used to a lot of like eccentric characters and artistic hijinks. So somebody dressed head to toe in a spacesuit is actually not weird to me. So I wasn't feeling any red flag when he came up to me in my gallery. And we started talking and he was, I could tell he was like highly intelligent, but definitely off. And he looks at me and since your listeners don't know what I look like, he keeps saying like, oh, you look like Jessica Rabbit. And, you know, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I hear that sometimes. Thanks. And then he looks at me and he goes, and I'm going to stalk you. And I was like, mm. I was like, excuse me. Like, it was just really like, what? And he kept insisting that. And so I was like, all right, creep. And like, I kicked him out and I kicked him out without incident. Like he went when I kicked him out. And so I was like, that's really bizarre. And so a couple of days later, I can't remember, it was like on blogs or something. Cause I had told some friends about the incident and there were some like blogs or maybe news articles or something saying like, oh, this guy was stalking Ivanka Trump. He got extradited by bounty hunters. He's now in jail at Rikers Island. I'm like, oh my God, that's the guy that I just had that really creepy incident with. And then he started writing these like really, at first they weren't threats. They were just like these like long schizophrenic nonsensical ramblings. And so at first I was like, okay, this is weird, but like it's not threatening and he's in jail. So, okay, whatever. And then they very rapidly started to increase to really fucking terrifying, very, very graphic rape and kidnap threats and death threats. And I'm Jewish, and somehow he found that out, which is interesting because I don't really talk about it. No, I'm not hiding it. It just doesn't really come a conversation. And his fantasy is to rape me and gas me through my door with Zyklon B, which was used to kill my relatives in the Holocaust, which is really graphic and horrible. And you could imagine you know, the insomnia that comes because, you know, at this point I was just living in an apartment, you know, like just like a regular person, you know, anybody could gas you through your door. So I was getting all these letters and then eventually emails and I was just like horrified. I didn't know what to do. And so I went to police thinking, okay, this guy's got like a long criminal history. They're going to care. And they couldn't have been more dismissive. They told me to dye my hair, get off the internet, you know, the old victim blame and shame. And I was very horrified by that. And then they told me, they said, well, so my stalker comes from a wealthy family. He's never had a job in his life. And so he just kind of like flies around the country stalking people and doing bad things. And so they said, because he doesn't have a fixed address, like, yeah, you qualify for a restraining order, but if you don't know where he is, you can't serve him. So like, that's when I started thinking like, okay, if there's precedent for serving people for closure notices over email, why can't, and I, if he can send me a death threat over email, why can't I send protective order over email. You know, we have ways of notifying if someone's opened something or not. That's not actually hard. So that was, that's when my brain started to kind of click and go, huh, wow, it's really shitty for victims. Just because I've always been a problem solver. That's kind of like my thing. Like I'm not a bitcher, like, which is fine. It it feels good to vent and bitch. That's great. But like, for me, that doesn't do me any good. I'm like, no, I got to solve the problem. So I was like, okay, all right, let me think about this. I started kind of like 
keeping little notes about little things that weren't like working in my situation and like, you know, if I could wave a wand, like what I'd like to do to fix them. So this just kept going on and on and on. The death threats were just getting worse. They were getting more frequent. And I'm just starting to go, okay, this is, this is a problem. This is really, really bad. And can I just pause you, Lenore? Yeah, yeah. And just say to anyone listening, like what Lenore is describing, although it's next level because there's celebrities involved and all of that, but the heart of it where no matter what, Lenora had such difficulty getting any kind of help. It's very, very typical. Yeah. You know, like this story from the standpoint of, you know, being a survivor or being someone who's getting stalked and not being able to get help and, and no one listening and falling on deaf ears. It's just so that is the common experience. A hundred percent. So one of the things I had forgotten to mention was in typical Lenora fashion, my best thing is also my worst thing. I was like, I don't know, my life is kind of like that. And that same article that had gotten me my stalker had also gotten me the man who'd become my mentor. So my boss, my boss of many years, he's not my boss anymore, had seen the article and became intrigued with me. And he actually wanted me to come in an audition. He, he's like the king of reality TV casting. He wanted me to come in for an audition for an MTV show. And like I came in and he just thought I was great. But at the time, you know, I was 30, so I was too old for MTV. But he thought I was really cool. And he was like, wait, you're a journalist. You used to eat class in a circus. You do all these weird things. And he liked to hire journalists because it makes a lot of sense for reality casting because you're great at, like, finding unusual people and doing the interview and getting the hardest story. Like, all the skills kind of translate. And print media, right at that point, had just, like, fallen out, right? So there was a lot of journalists that were sort of loose trying to figure out like what their next move was. So that actually what's got me into television, which has been my job for the last 11 years. So, cause that's going to come into the story too. I just realized I'd skipped over that part. So yeah. So at this point I'm getting these death threats, these rape threats. I had figured out how to track IP. So I was able to at least know what part of the country he was in to sort of go, okay, if he's like in New York today, I'm okay. But you know, if he's in Nevada, I'm, he could be here in a few hours. I'm at elevated risk, right? So I wouldn't say I was normalizing it, but I was starting to like learn risk minimization techniques because I'm like, fuck, nobody is going to help me here. Like I have to do whatever I can. So I started kind of like learning that stuff. And then my very beloved mentor, my boss started getting death threats from my stalker, which was horrifying because everybody's so afraid of workplace violence. And my coworkers would Google and they would see that my stalker tried to kill himself in Ivanka's store. So he's got a history of workplace violence. And so what ended up happening is even though my boss, and we're, we're still cool. I actually just saw him a few weeks ago. Even though, you know, he loved my work and he loved me as a person, he was really scared to have me there. And when you work in entertainment, you work show to show. You're not a full-time employee for the most part. So my contract just did not get renewed. So I ended up losing my job because of my stalker. And I was so horrified by what was happening you know, I went back to the police one more time and I was like, look, he's sending death threats to my boss now. Like you have to do something. And I will single them out because they were so terrible. Northeast division of LAPD. I'm, I'm thinking of you. They were really awful to me. And so at that point I was like, well, fuck this. I work in TV and I happen to know somebody who was a producer on a show called Crime Watch Daily. So that was the first time I went public with my story. Timeline wise, that'd be 2015. So I go on and I tell my story, which that was actually a really pivotal point for me because they teamed me up with this amazing woman, Rhonda Saunders. And Rhonda Saunders has been another mentor. I love her very much. And she was instrumental in writing the first laws for stalking. She was very heavily involved. It all started with the death of Rebecca Schaefer. If your listeners know that story, she was a very beautiful actress. 
this was around 1989 and people don't know this part of this. I know this because I do all the TV shows about her because, you know, she's not here to advocate for herself. So I've done her story a bunch of times, but she was actually reading the script for pretty woman. And if he hadn't come and killed her on her doorstep, you know, she could have had Julie Roberts career. And I think about that all the time about all the potential and all the things just because she was kind and, you know, she let a fan in. and things were very different in 1989. Like apparently he had been writing the studios and they never thought to alert her because they didn't take stalking seriously. So wow. yeah, it, it's, there, there wasn't even a lot. Actually, I, I have a friend, Kathleen, and her stalking story is really terrible before these laws. It's just shocking. Like obviously, the way I sort of talk about stalking in this country, it's very much where like sexual assault was in the 70s. You know, it's like very, very there. So we have like a really long way to go, both in yeah. the culture and the understanding, right? And like another reason why I think people really misunderstand the nature of stalking is because I'm an anomaly, right? So if we just get into the stats real quick, it's they say it's 7.5 million Americans. And obviously that's more because there's so many that are under, it's not reported properly. Not to mention like the worst cases, a lot of the homicides, they're tallied as homicides. They're not known as stalking cases. Like when we talk about like Nicole Brown Simpson, we know her as being murdered. We don't go, OJ stalked her, right? So we're not even culturally like assigning the appropriate words to understand the gravity of how serious this crime is. So if we're sort of loosely going off of the CDC stats of 7.5 million Americans, even though we know it's much higher, I'm roughly in what they believe is 3% the anomaly, which is the, it's a stranger. The majority of these cases are former intimate partner violence with like DV overlap, right? Like that's the majority of stalking as well as like people that you know in your life, right? And maybe it wasn't an intimate partner, maybe it's a former coworker. And just to back you, working with these kind of clients, people that have been sexually abused or what have you, that's my experience too, is that I have to tell them, I'm like, you're describing stalking right now. Yeah. And they're like, oh, what? And then I describe it back to them. And it's like this, it's almost like coming out of the matrix or waking up or something like they, they just didn't label it that way, partially because, you know, a, a patriarchal culture, like especially, you know, a patriarchal culture so often normalizes this behavior and women accept this behavior and they don't even sometimes recognize abuse when it's happening. Same thing with rape. A lot of times women don't recognize that they've been raped. So all this stuff is underreported. Totally. And then I think it also goes deeper than that, which is if you look at the psychology behind who it's happening to, when you're being stalked, the last thing you want is more attention, right? So you're not telling your story to people. You're not doing the media. You just want it to fucking go away. You don't want to enrage your stalker. So we don't right. have these first-person accounts, which is why I realize, like, so I've done over 100 restraining orders successfully for people. We'll get into that journey later, right? But in doing all of these, I'm frequently in restraining order court, and I constantly think about the literal face of stalking. There was this woman who had two black eyes holding her baby, right? Like, that's, to me, the face of stalking. And so I have to be twice as loud for all of those victims who can't be, right? So that kind of started my journey. So I do this show in 2015. I link up with Rhonda Saunders, who wrote the one of the people who helped write the first law for stalking. And that's when I was like, wait a second. Like, I have a lot of ideas. Like, this is all bullshit. Like, I'm going to be loud. Like, and so that's where my journey started to change. Because prior to 2015, I was dealing with my father who died in 2013 and not letting him know how bad this was because I didn't want his last memories to be, like, worried about me. So it was, like, this really, like, depressive, difficult time, just full of anxiety. You know, it was the kind of thing where reaching out to people, like even well-intentioned friends, if you haven't been stalked in this manner, 
they would give me really shitty advice. Like it, it made sense to like, just block him. And it's like, no, actually don't block people because you need to gather evidence. So, you know, it's like, there was like a lot of that going on. So I felt very isolated and it was a really scary time. And then I really think my shift happened in 2015 because I did that show and I met Rhonda and I started really saying, oh my God, there's like amazing people working on these issues and this is all going to change for me. And that's when my friend Polly Perrette linked me up with Adam Schiff. I started working with him. My proposals have gone to like Department of Justice, you know, through him. So like all that sort of like advocacy and activism started. And then what happened was Vice did an article on me. It came out either 2016 or 2017. I can't remember now where they called me the Aaron Brockovich of stalking because of the work that I was doing. And that actually went viral. That went very, very far. Like I actually had people trying to buy my life rights for movies when that happened. That's, that's how viral it went. So what ended up happening is since that article came out, I swear to God, there has not been one day of my life where I have not been contacted by someone who needed some level of assistance, right? So that completely changed the course of my life. And then that's when I started doing the restraining orders, teaching risk minimization, speaking at schools. Now I'm, I'm working on a bill it's called SAVE. It's Stalking Abuse Victims Empowerment. It's a restraining order registry. Yeah, so I started doing all of that work, like all the boots on the ground stuff. And then I started expanding to all the gender-based crimes. I actually, LA has a new district attorney, George Gascon, and he created the first time in LA the Victims Advisory Board, where they chose nine people from the city of LA, which I'm one of them. And I advocate for all the gender-based crimes. So that's stalking, DV, and sexual assault, which I've experienced all three, even though people don't know that, but I have. And so right now I'm trying to do things like I recently proposed. People don't know this, but like take a large city like Los Angeles, right? There's only four places that you can go and get a rape test kit. It's called, for, for the listeners who don't know, they're safe and they're sane. So sane are the sex assault nurse examiners and the tests are called safe for sex assault forensic exams. So there's only four places you can go. You cannot just go to your regular ER they're not there. Not to mention, we have a national crisis with the, shor- the shortages for nursing. So one of the things that we're proposing, and like all it takes to make someone a sane nurse who can do these exams, it's like a 40-hour course. So you want to like incentivize that. But it's a real problem. So if getting the test is like, you know, your first barrier to justice, like they're not going to prosecute successfully really without this test. It's really important. So one of the things I'm proposing for the city are like mobile units that would come to your home because a lot of people, you know, that would change everything. So like, that's one thing I'm working on right now. You know, we live in LA, the city of the green room, and people don't realize that when you go to court for restraining order, you're there for several hours and the person who abused you or is threatening you could be right there next to you in the hallway. There's no separation. And I, so that woman that I was, I was mentioning earlier with the black eyes holding the baby, she inspired me to do like human shield in court because what happened was I was there for someone else. And then the offender, I don't know if it was her boyfriend, husband, whatever he was to her, kept mad dogging her to a point where she ran out. And I was like, oh, fuck this, never again. So that's when I started accompanying people to court and creating like a human shield for them, which is also really cathartic. Sometimes I bring other survivors with me and we'll like sit around the person. And when that, you know, asshole looks at us, we're just like, turn around, dickhead. And it's really, really satisfying. So we, we we do that too. And so like one of the things I'm advocating for right now is a green room in courts where a victim can sit quietly, privately, safely until they're here. It's their hearing and their case is called because that would, you know, do a lot for them. And like, what a simple courtesy to just have one designated room. So there's a lot of things in the victim survivor experience that people don't think about unless you're there that really like alter and, and harm your experience and make it infinitely worse. And so I'm trying to like strip that away and improve that. 
for people. So yeah, so I'm doing really major work with the board right now. And the board is really cool too. The board, like I'm just there in one capacity. We have like gang interventionists and, you know, everybody's kind of coming from a different area of harm and violence. And so having their perspective is really wonderful. And I, I really appreciate that the DA is doing that, even though they work with crime victims every day, but just, you know, to have us there because we, we go into our individual communities because, you know, there's a lot of communities that don't deal with law enforcement at all. They just don't want to. So right. to give them a seat at the table to understand how individual communities, what their needs are and how we can help them in non-traditional ways is like very exciting. So it's a bit controversial. You know, he's, how do I put it? There's only four progressive DAs in the country right now, and they're taking a lot of heat from the old guard who doesn't like change. So it's kind of a contentious time, but I feel like we're on the right side of history. So I'm proud to be a part of it. So yeah, doing, doing all that work. There's so much happening, right? I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, like, which thing do we talk about now? So yeah, so that's where my journey started to change. You know, I started to work with victims directly and like, it was like a weird thing, you know, you sort of go through this and you're like, well, wait a second. Like, oh yeah. So back to my stuff. I see I'm talking about everybody else. I didn't even talk about what, what was going on with me. So I'm doing all this work, helping other people while nobody's helping me because right. that's also very me too. So I'm doing all this work and my stalker is just all the threats all the time. And, you know, he tried to kidnap my dog and he went to my eyelash place and scared all the women. Like it's getting really scary. So I do all the TV shows about stalking, right? So while we were filming my 48 hours, timeline-wise, this puts us in 2017. 48 hours, you know, I appreciate the platform. Like 17 million people saw my the two-hour special that we did. But what I didn't appreciate in hindsight was that without my consent, they interviewed my stalker, which, you know, here's the thing. I probably would have agreed to it because I now have the thing nobody has, which is footage of their stalker fully admitting to stalking them being terrifying. Because also, like, as far as like what was going on with the public, I was getting a lot of people when I came forward telling me, you like attention, look at you, or, you know, just all, all the shitty things that we do. So horrible. So horrible. So I was getting a lot of that. And so everything shifted for me once the footage of my stalker being terrifying came out. Like that didn't happen anymore. Everybody's like, oh shit, he's going to kill you. Like it really shifted everything. So yes, I'm grateful that I have that footage because I mean, also how terrible is it that that's what it takes for people to like believe you? Like that's a whole other conversation. Right. So I'm really grateful that I have that footage. But what ended up happening was I got emails from my stalker going, oh, 48 hours just interviewed me and we're going to be bonded together forever. And like, they really put me at risk because, you know, shows like this, 48 hours specifically, they're used to doing homicides, not stalking, which was like at that point unadjudicated. It's an active investigation. So they really put me at a lot of risk, <laughs> you know, like he could have killed me. And that may have been what triggered him to shortly after that attempt to kidnap me, which is what happened. So at this point, my case was with the TMU, which is the threat management unit, which is an elite stalking unit for the LAPD. That's really only for celebrities. And my stalk, I'm not a celebrity. My stalker, however, besides stalking Ivanka, stalks Kim Kardashian and Gwyneth Paltrow, which we'll get to in a minute. So I had heard that he was stalking Kim and I was working with like her ex-Massad security team and the scariest, toughest guys out there. So I thought for sure her team was going to catch him and we're going to be all good, but that's not what happened. What happened was my stalker wrote me and said, you know, I know you go to LA Comic-Con, I'm going to go there and kidnap you. And so he didn't know this, but I, I know the owners. And so I worked with them and we got extra security. We didn't want to scare the kids. They were always safe. I got to say they did the best job. No one else was in danger, but, you know, dress them up like Batman and Superman. And when he came to kidnap me, 
we caught him and we delivered him to LAPD. I, I caught and delivered my own stalker after he tried to kidnap me. If you would, could you paint that picture a little bit more? I wasn't physically like in the room when it happened. I was on the other side of the convention center. So visually, it's so cool, though, to imagine these people like dressed like Chewbacca, like attacking and knocking this dude to the ground, you know? I know. It's like the, uh, only with my story, right? Like that only happened <laughs> to me. So what happened was my friend Holly, she had done a movie with Jonathan's past called Superman Lives about the Tim Burton Superman movie with Nick Cage and never got to be made. So they made a documentary about it. And so they were there at Comic-Con with a booth, right? And so I was like at the full other side of the convention. It's a huge convention center. And then I get a text from her and she's like, holy shit, your stalker's here. Because my stalker sometimes calls himself Superman. So of course he's obsessed with the Superman movie. So I got the text that he was there and I was like, okay, you know, you're in this hall, like very far away from me. And so then I let the security know and the security did it. I didn't physically see it. I just know what happened. So as far as painting a picture. And so then... We caught him, not LAPD. That's a whole other, that's <laughs> a lot with that. They just love me so much. So we then delivered him to LAPD. He was there on a million dollars bail for stalking me, which is like doesn't happen. But so then the Kardashians were able to serve their restraining orders. And then out of nowhere, Gwyneth Paltrow serves hers. And I want to be clear, I don't know exactly what happened with Gwyneth Paltrow. I just kind of pieced things together from what I've seen online. There was some incident with him and her kids at school. I don't know what happened. Something went down enough to merit a restraining order. So I'm sitting here going, oh my God, all these celebrities and like little old me. Like I, so then there's a proposition in California, which is very misleading, but I get why people voted for it. It's called Prop 57. And Prop 57, the way the verbiage went out, it was like, nonviolent offenders get reduced sentencing. So you hear this, I hear this, a reasonable person hears it, and you're like, cool, nonviolent, like, I don't care, whatever. To me, that's like weed and shoplifting, you know? But what they don't explain is that in California, the list of crimes that are qualified as nonviolent, which include rape of an unconscious person, forced sodomy, human trafficking, stalking, right? Like, how, And I remember saying to the old DA, I was like, is rape of an unconscious person not violent because they can't fight back? Like, what is this? What the fuck is this? So... I had also, with the old DA, so another thing I've been advocating for is my stalker wears an ankle monitor when he's out. And so I want to create an app with the city using geofencing. Like if, say, your restraining order is 3,000 feet, it would give you advanced warning, right? So mm. that's something I'm working on. But anyway, so Prop 57, what ended up happening was my stalker got convicted of felony stalking max, which is the highest felony for stalking you can get in California. But instead of a four-year sentence, which is supposed to be 57, you know, call stalking nonviolent, it's immediately reduced in half. So he served two years for stalking me, even though he stalked me for a fucking decade. So in that two years, I was able to get married. And I had this like really over-the-top wedding I was very public with because I wanted to show survivors. Like, I always say, I'm just like trauma piled on the Doc Martens, you know, like I'm so much, but, but here I am like, and I'm not saying that marriage is everybody's happy ending, like insert your own happy ending, whatever that is for you specifically. But like, I have somebody who loves me unconditionally, even though my soccer like threatened him. And, you know, so it's like, even when you have these things happen, you're still worthy of love. And yes, dating was really hard when I was single, you know, they would Google me and like, you're already on an awkward Tinder date. And they're just like, so I hear a guy wants to kill you. You're like, I can't believe we haven't even like ordered a drink yet. But yeah, so like that happened a lot. But I have, wow. an, I have an amazing husband. And you know, what else is really funny is my husband's an attorney, but he's like an entertainment attorney. 
So many fucking people think my husband is somehow responsible for getting my stalker. I'm like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. There's a huge, there's not only is there a difference between civil and criminal, like my husband's very emotionally supportive, but he had, I did my own discovery at my trial. My husband had nothing to do with any of this. And I just find it so offensive that everyone's like, oh, you're married to a hotshot attorney. And I'm like, yeah, and he is doing his cases over, like, this has nothing to do with me, like, at all. Yeah, he's a brilliant entertainment attorney. I'm like, I'm the one in the Harvard Journal of Legislation, not him. Right. He's winning his fancy cases, but we're like, it's a very different world. Like, I'm the one working with the DA, not him. Like, these are different things. So I just have to put that out there. Like, every time that happens, I'm fucking horrified, which happens a yeah. lot. I mean, it's just it's just a triple layer cake of misogyny, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the fact that you're not given that recognition for all the work that you've done, despite terrifying circumstances. It's so frustrating. And I remember recently when you posted the video of your stalker for the 48 hours thing, and I'm reading the posts, especially from from men, and they were just so surprised. And, you know, and they were like, Oh, wow, this actually is serious. And I'm like, why does it take seeing this video? I mean, it's just so frustrating. And honestly, just even with my friends, etc. Like I have some of the most liberal progressive friends. And sometimes I'll hear the guys make some stalking joke like, oh, you know, he really likes you, maybe he'll stalk you or you know, and I'm like, that's don't joke about those things. <laughs> you know, every time that happens, I'm like, hey, replace the word with rape. Does that feel good when you say it? Oh, probably not. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, because it's that serious. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, shit. Like, you wouldn't say, oh, that guy likes you. Maybe he'll rape you. You know, like, you would never say that. So why would you say, oh, maybe he'll, maybe I've been stalking you. You know, like, come on. And by the way, I'm always horrifying people. <laughs> like, I'm putting things in context all the time. So that's, like, something I'm used to. But what happened was, so my stalker then gets the two years. I get married. He gets released December of 2019. Reoffends within three days. He went wow. three whole days and uh, started making YouTube videos about me. I put him in jail, I think, five times. He's in jail right now, gets out next week. So I think we're on time five. You know, I'm not quite sure. Something like five or six. He stalks many people. This will probably be for the rest of my life. It is what it is. And I just, you know, I'm vigilant. I, I do as much as I can. It's just one of those things where, like, it it's already taken so much from me that I refuse to let it take anymore. And so I just pivoted to helping other people and... I'm super proud as well. I just launched a company, Lenora Claire Consulting LLC. And originally when I came up with it, I'm in this really unique position where I've worked in entertainment over a decade, but I'm also a crime survivor working with other crime survivors. So now that everybody's like got this huge thirst for true crime, it like really is different for me, right? Like I've seen how the sausage is made and I can tell you right now, a lot of it is not ethical. And if I sort of frame it as like, imagine your most traumatic moment and imagine all these people are getting rich buying houses off of you sharing your most traumatic moment. Like this is gross. What is this? And I think especially your audience will understand like there's like the whole ethical porn movement and how fabulous that is, right? And right. so I'm kind of posing it the same way with true crime. Like there's ethical and unethical true crime. So I started my company and originally it was just going to be me. But again, in Lenora fashion, that's, it's already like this massive thing, which is like a whole funny, it's like it's grown like really quick. So originally when I conceived of it, so kind of like how a lot of sets now have intimacy coordinators. And if your audience isn't familiar with it, that was sort of, you know, it's somebody who like, let's say that there's a sex scene or a nudity scene. There's somebody who's trained and they come on set to advocate for the actor and make sure boundaries are respected and everybody's, you know, acting above board and it's everything's kosher, right? So that's a really wonderful thing. And I'm glad that we have that. 
But it occurred to me, so like, wait a second. So someone who's like playing a crime victim in a movie gets more consideration than an actual fucking crime victim who goes on these shows. And let me tell you, a lot of really bad things happen. Like producers, for example, because they have the right to tell our story without our consent, because it's now a news story, they'll call you and they'll be like, well, we're doing your story anyway. Don't you want to get ahead of it? So they coerce you. That's like one thing that happens. Another thing that happens, which has happened to me multiple times, they have you on set. And here's the thing. I say this as a producer myself. They're not necessarily bad people, right? Whether you're an investigative journalist or a producer, you're there to do your job and you're there to get the best soundbite. But it's kind of like you would never, ever, and your audience, I'm a white Jewish person, just so they can't see me. I would never say, oh, I know what black people's experience is like because I have black friends. You can't say that's not funny. No, I don't know. I can only try to understand, right? So it's the same thing. Like a producer, if you're not yourself a a violent crime survivor, you do not know. You're probably not trauma-informed. You don't know what the triggers are. You don't know what my experience is. You don't know what my needs are. So you're just trying to do your job, which is getting your soundbite. But you have no idea how making me repeat certain things over and over again is so triggering and traumatizing to me. And you keep pushing and manipulating and they want to see your tears because that's what they want. And so, and so like another thing people don't realize, I have a friend who's like, a, he's actually on my, my dream team because I'll get into that in a minute. But like shows like American Idol, they give psych exams to make sure the contestants are in a good place so that if they're humiliated, they don't go harm themselves. But instead with these crime shows, they'll put people who've just had the worst thing happen, right? Their loved one was murdered, their rape, whatever. And they're very vulnerable and they may not be in a position where this is the best choice for them. And I find that very dangerous. So I'm trying to create protocol for making sure everybody's in a good place to do these shows and as well as aftercare. Like one of the things I do when working with crime survivors is that every state is like a victim's compensation program. California, for example, where we are, if you're a survivor of a violent crime and you have documentation, you're entitled to up to five grand or 30 sessions of a therapist of your choice paid for by the state. And let me tell you, cops don't tell you this. Nobody tells you this, right? So I do this for crime survivors all the time. So one of the things I'm trying to advocate for is that these productions make sure that you have aftercare and therapy afterwards. So anyway, so the first tier of what Lenore Claire Consulting does is you've got myself and Jesse Buttafuoco. You probably remember her parents with Joey Buttafuoco, right? right? So she grew up as an eight-year-old with her, her mother being shot in the face and the ways that these productions were terrible to her, right? So she is very, she's actually in school. I'm so proud of her. She's in school right now to be a psychologist and she works at a rehab facility for teenagers. She's just an amazing person. So the first level is you could have Jesse or myself and we're essentially, we're victim liaisons. We show up on set and we make sure that the victim survivor is treated appropriately, you know, and everything's, we're kind of the liaison between production and the survivor. So that's like one role. Now, the biggest part of my company is a consulting role where I have, it's the true crime dream team. Amanda Knox just joined. She's my new wrongful conviction expert. Like when I say dream team, it it really is. Like everybody I have is unbelievable. We've got Linny Westifer. Linny was a CBS journalist who was held hostage in a Trader Joe's where LAPD had actually accidentally killed a Trader Joe's employee right in front of her. So she was held hostage, right? And so after that happened, it's really hard to go back to just being a journalist after you've been on the other side of things. So she's one of my consultants and she's going to help me with, you know, being trauma informed and helping news media do interviews without triggering people. So that's like her area of expertise. I've got like Jason Piccolo. He was the amazing Homeland Security whistleblower who blew the whistle about all the immigrant kids who are being displaced and then trafficked. So he's wow. a badass. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. If people want to pull up my website, it's Lenore Claire LLC. 
It's mm-hmm. the fucking dream team. Everybody, everybody is unreal who I have from the survivors to the experts. I have forensic psychologists. It's like everybody, because what I want to do is I want to get retainer agreements with like my big goal, honestly, is Netflix. I want to get a retainer agreement with Netflix because what I want to do is consult. And again, I'm not here to censor, but make more like making mindful recommendations. So hypothetically, right. if I was hired by Netflix you know, I would have my crew of all of us survivors and people who work with victims and victim survivors. And like, if it was me, I would say, okay, Netflix, you know, I saw your Night Stalker documentary and I thought it was in really poor taste to have the crime scene photos where you see the murdered bodies. Like the story is compelling, but these relatives are still alive and you're really desensitizing an audience. Like, can we yank those? I, I found them really distasteful. Or I might say to them, because the show, like whenever I do speaking engagements in colleges, a lot of young people, their first introduction to stalking is from the show You. It's so popular. And so, like, I would say, okay, you've got this hit show You, right? People love to binge watch it. Can I make little, like, 15-second interstitials in between that give helpful information? Like, if you're being stalked, do this, right? Because you've got this platform, and you're profiting off of our pain, but you're not yes. really doing anything to like, you know, so I want to get these retainer agreements with production companies and networks. And, you know, they can also, for example, like another one I'd love to get is Dick Wolf. You know, Dick Wolf, I know he hires law enforcement consultants, like, because I, I know the one from SVU that he hires, but I don't think he hires victims because when I'm watching his shows, you know, the real story is you've got the young black woman who's afraid to deal with the police, or you have, you know, a person who doesn't even know where to get a rape kit. And so these stories where like the cop is like sleeping overnight in the police department to solve the case and it's wrapped up neatly in a bow, like that's not real life. So I'd really love to consult and actually bring, you know, first person perspective, also to scripted shows. Like if you're doing something or a movie on wrongful conviction, hire Amanda to tell you what it's like, right? So that's what the consulting part of it does. And then the sort of third tier of services my company does is we have the on-camera experts because, you know, we're now in this weird place where like everyone's a YouTube university graduate and they think they're an expert and they think they know things and they really don't. And it's dangerous, especially when you're we're dealing with such vulnerable populations as crime victims. So production companies could just like look on my site and go, oh, forensic psychologist, great. You want a man or a woman? I have both. You know, it's kind of like really, really stellar talent So that's the third level of what we do because, you know, there's nothing worse than you've already been traumatized and then you go on these shows and they manipulate you and they, and and we also, we don't get paid. People don't know that either. You're never paid to be on crime shows. So it's really, it's, and again, I'm somebody who consumed true crime before I was a true crime story. So I'm not shitting on people who, I know it's like people like it for a lot of reasons and I'm fine with that. I just want people to be more mindful about the content they're consuming and to really have the distinction that we're not just content, we're not just stories, we're people. Right, with heartbeats that are affected, that have symptoms, that are trying to recover and heal. Yeah. And they're so casual about their viewing, and they're really, again, they're not looking at how the sausage is made. They're not looking at what's being done to us on these sets. And and like I said, like it's very much the ethical porn thing. It's like once you learn about ethical porn, you're like, this is so awesome. I can't believe this isn't the standard. Like, I love this, right? right. So, I mean, what you're offering is just something that's so common sense, you know, and it, it's shocking, not shocking that this hasn't existed for decades. And now you're offering something. You're like just handing over this dream team that should have been in existence decades ago. Yeah. They should just be thanking you. They should just be like beating down your door. I mean, it's just like people don't understand even the basic 101s about trauma. 
I know all of this is going to manifest just as, you know, you easily manifested this dream team. And then I think this next wave is just, it's going to manifest as well. I know, you know, we're going to have you come on for episode two as well. And we're just going to unpack and ask all of these questions about all these different sections of your life, including this part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lenore, I absolutely want to thank you for sharing what you did today. And not just sharing what you did today, but to use those experiences to change the system and to help other people and to let people know how you're doing that. And as Kate said, you know, and to the listeners, it doesn't stop here. We've got another episode. As you know, each of our guests joins us for two episodes. So Lenore is going to be back to unpack what we talked about today even further. So if you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the continuation of this conversation when we once again dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell. <laughs>